Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. I've been talking about LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com. You've heard about it several times in the introduction of this podcast. So get on out to LearnTrueHistory.com to get history the way it was intended to be told with no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. But not only that, I've got my new How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, my forthcoming book. So I want you to go to LearnTrueHistory.com to sign up for that great program. But also, if you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can get in on some giveaways for my forthcoming book. So two websites for you, LearnTrueHistory.com and BlameHamilton.com. Get in on both of those things. LearnTrueHistory.com is the place to go to learn history the way it was intended to be told. BlameHamilton.com is where you learn about how Alexander Hamilton was the greatest villain in American history. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Show. This is episode 110. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, if you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. You can find me on social media. You can find me on Facebook at Brian McClanahan. You can follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. And you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just search for Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to do that, you can go to my homepage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you have all the buttons for my social media accounts. Also on that page, if you give me an email address, I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook read by yours truly of the same title. So go on out there and do that. And of course, if you like this podcast and you want to throw a few pennies my way, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support and you can contribute to the show. Also, just want to remind you this podcast is coming out just about a week to go, less than a week to go, before the promotions for how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America are done forever. They end on September 18th, so you want to get in on those promotions now. Just go to BlameHamilton.com. If you pre-order one book, I'll send you an e-book, The Jeffersonian Solution. If you pre-order two or more, I'll not only send you the e-book, I'll also send you a six-lecture course on Alexander Hamilton. So you want to get that. And, of course, everyone who pre-orders a book and sends me a screenshot of their invoice will be registered to win a a master-level membership to LibertyClassroom.com. So you want to get out there and do that. And, of course, if you already are a master-level member, you'll get a gift card to Amazon. So great prizes, all available at BlameHamilton.com. Just go there for the details. And a couple other things. Uh, If you do like this podcast also, please go out to iTunes and give me a rating. Uh, Review the podcast. It helps uh, get some traction going there. And if you do like this podcast and you can't get enough of Brian McClanahan, well, every week I do the Abbeville Institute podcast as well. That's on all things Southern. And there will be a little crossover with this show today, but... Uh, if you want to go to abbevilleinstitute.org, you can see that I've got over 80 episodes of the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute there, so you can get that as well. That's three times a week of Brian McClanahan, uh, and um, you're just going to get it from, a, from another place for that podcast. So go on out and check that out as well. So I mentioned today that we've got uh, a little crossover. In fact, uh, last week, I published a piece at the Abbeville Institute entitled AHA Revisionism, and I'm going to cover that in this particular podcast, because you may not have heard the the Abbeville podcast, and uh, you may not listen to that podcast. And so uh, this one is important to me because I I have a PhD in American history, of course, and the American Historical Association presumes to speak for all American historians. Uh, If you look at the board of directors for the AHA, 
most of these people are not even American historians. Most of them are Europeanists or world historians. Uh, all of them are interested in the trendy uh, topics of race, class, gender. Uh, in fact, that is the historical profession, it seems like today. If you're not focusing on race, class, and gender, then uh, you're not in the know, so to speak, when it comes to uh, American history or world history. And this particular statement that I'm going to talk about has been um, uh, supported by you know, French historians, LGBT historians. Uh, the Southern Historical Association did support this statement, and again, that shows you where they are now. Uh, but this thing is a sloppy piece of work, and it's why... Uh, so many of us in the profession have just shunned mainstream establishment historians, uh, shunned the mainstream hist establishment historical profession because of things like this. So they released a statement, the AHA released a statement on August 28th, presuming to speak for the entire American historical profession on the issue of whether Confederate monuments should remain or if they should be removed from public spaces. Now, as you might imagine, the AHA came out for removal. And their reasoning is uh, quite interesting, um, to say the least, uh, because they don't even follow the, their own standards for which they profess to support. So I'm going to go through a little bit of the statement, and I'm going to go through this little piece. It's only a 1,500-word piece that I wrote, and, uh, but you could, you could write uh, a 10,000-word piece on this particular subject or more, uh, and uh, getting into some of the, the details. But there are some things here that maybe you don't know about. Uh, with uh, Confederate monuments. Now, I've already done a, an entire podcast on American monuments, um, and I'm going to mention kind of the same things in this and, and some of it, but I want to get into this AHA because I know people email me sometimes and say, you know, I want to go into the historical profession. I want to teach history. What you're going to find is that, first of all, if you want to do that, I mean, the, the, the jobs are limited, number one. Uh, number two, unless you're doing race, class, and gender, uh, you're going to have a hard time getting a job at a university. Now, there are other op options for you. You could teach at private schools. You could go to a community college. Uh, there are some options out there. Uh, but um, these are the kind of things you're going to be confronted with in your, in your uh, profession as well, trying to get through graduate school. You're going to be confronted with these type of professors who uh, don't have an inkling of knowledge about some of the things they presume to know. As I say in this piece, the statement is a little more than historical claptrap, uh, establishment claptrap, excuse me, designed, uh, disguised as highbrow intellectual discourse, par for the course in the modern profession, replete with distortions, exaggerations, half-truths, and presentism myths. So the statement begins, and, I, and if you go out to the piece, uh, it's at abbevilleinstitute.org, the statement begins uh, by suggesting that the AHA welcomes the emerging national debate without, with, uh, about Confederate monuments. But then it suggests that much of this public statuary was erected without such conversations and without any public decision-making process. That's just a complete lie. Uh, the statement later concludes by asserting that, quote, nearly all monuments to the Confederacy and its leaders were erected without anything resembling a democratic process. Regardless of their representation, the actual population, any given constituency, African Americans had no voice and no opportunity to raise questions about the purposes or likely impact of the honor accorded to the builders of the Confederate States of America. So, again, another lie. Another lie. 
Uh, as I say, uh, you know, both these arguments are disingenuous at best, but I mean, I was being kind in this piece. This, this is a lie. Um, nearly all the funds for these monuments came from private donations, including, in some cases, former slaves. Women's organizations sought pennies to help fund relief enterprises. And one of the things they were trying to do is find limbs, artificial limbs, for Confederate veterans who had lost a leg or an arm. You go back and read uh, some of the advertisements and other things that were being put out for these women's relief organizations. It's no different than the women's relief organizations or Wounded Warrior Project, these kind of things that you find today. It's no different. These men had gone out, fought, served in battle, been wounded or killed, and had left behind families, uh, brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, fathers, mothers. They had left behind all these things. And uh, when they came back, if they were wounded, you know, the, the common way of trying to treat a wound, if you had your shin shattered, for example, they weren't going to try to set your shin and get the, get the bullet out. They were just going to cut off the bottom of your leg. And it's kind of hard to be a farmer when this is the situation. So you had these women's relief organizations that were invested in trying to get these men some help uh, for their wounds, for the terrible things they were suffering through. And this is north and south. It's just in the north, you had pensions. You had a vast pension network set up where the south was paying, was paying for union veterans who had been wounded in the war. Uh, and uh, they were having to raise money for their own at first. So where is the fairness in that? Now, of course, someone would say, well, these people were traitors. They deserve it. Really? Uh, the Union veterans, now I know the Grand Army of the Republic, which was the Union veteran organization, which mirrored the Confederate veterans, uh, they were pretty, um, at first, I say pretty, they were very opposed to uh, Southern soldiers getting any kind of recognition. But eventually they softened in their stance, and um, Confederate veterans were recognized as American veterans, and they eventually got pensions as well. But when you look at the Congress in the late 19th century, you look at the presidency of Grover Cleveland, for example, he issued more vetoes than any president in American history at that point because he was vetoing pension bills, fraudulent pension bills. People were trying to get a pension for diarrhea that they acquired 20 years after the war. Not for some wound that they got. And he, and he signed a lot of pension bills into, into law, but not for some wound that they received at the Battle of Gettysburg, for example. They were trying to get a pension for falling off a ladder. And so uh, this became a major part of the <clears throat> American political process because the Grand Army of the Republic acted as a Republican lobby group and in fact, they set aside one day of the week during the time Congress was in session just to deal with pension bills. So this became welfare. And Southerners were paying taxes to help support Confederate, I'm sorry, Union veterans while they were trying to raise their own pennies for monuments or for gravestones or for limbs or for a relief house, something to help their own veterans. Now, where is the honor and all? Where I mean, where is the AHA coming out and saying, "Well, you know, this was going on"? If they if they encourage discourse on this, why aren't they talking about these type of things? Why? Because they have a political agenda. 
Now, the AHA says, well, none of these monuments appeared uh, right after the war. This is true. You had a few. You had a wooden monument in Linwood Cemetery in, in uh, Columbus, Georgia. They didn't have any money. Plus, they were under military occupation. The military wasn't going to allow it at this point. They were actually running women off from cemeteries who were trying to put flowers on graves. Yeah, so of course the monuments didn't appear, and they had no money to build these things. But by the 1870s, you did start to see monuments of soldiers going up, 1870s and 1880s, and most of these were placed in cemeteries, uh, not in public locations. And even those that were placed in public locations were dedicated to soldiers, not individuals. Now, the individual monuments will come, and that's when people started having, again, more money to donate to these things, and not just from the South, from Northern capital as well. A lot of Northerners would contribute to these monuments. For example, Vanderbilt University, which had a very famous, now, now renamed, Confederate Memorial Hall. That was put there because Cornelius Vanderbilt's wife, her name was Frank, was a Southerner, and she wanted to ensure that uh, there was a place in Tennessee for these Confederate veterans. A play, and, and she wanted to ensure that some of these veterans could get an education. This is like the, the GI Bill. It's just being funded by a private individual, Cornelius Vanderbilt. Now, he had no problem with this. Cornelius Vanderbilt supported the Union during the war. He's from New York. And uh, he's saying, well, yeah, okay, my, my wife wants to do this, and so I'm going to ensure that uh, we put some money forward for this cause. And so uh, you, you had these kind of things going. You had a, and I didn't put this in the piece, but you had Northerners erect a, Confederate, a monument to Confederate dead in Montana. Northerners did this. Not Southerners, but Northerners. Uh, and so you had Northerners interested in reconciliation. Now, uh, Annette Gordon-Reed, who I'll talk about at the end of this piece, has, has condescendingly said, well, yeah, this is like you get in a fight with your little brother and you beat him up real bad, and then you just feel bad about it, so you let them do what they want. I mean, how condescending. It wasn't that at all. It was a spirit of reconciliation. It was a spirit of reckoning. I mean, this woman has no clue about a lot of things, but that's one thing, again, and she's on the board of the AHA. This is where the AHA comes from. Uh, and so the fact is, um, this was a spirit of healing that was going on in America at this time. We had lost a million men in the bloodiest war in American history. And people were saying, okay, let's heal the wounds of that. Let's get back together. We had had the Spanish-American War in 1896, which did a lot to reunite America, for good or ill. I mean, you know, I'm very critical of the Spanish-American War. I've done a podcast on that. But uh, one, of the, one of the byproducts of that, in terms of domestic policy, was a reunification of North and South for the first time since really since the 1860s. I mean, you, you had had some pretty difficult periods of time leading up to, to the Spanish-American War domestically, and that was part of it. Um, I mentioned in the piece that uh, you know taxpayers paid for um, the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. They paid for the Mount Rushmore carving, but they had to raise their own money for Stone Mountain. 
which was carved by the same person as Mount Rushmore. They had to raise their own money for the Jefferson Davis Monument in Richmond. They had to raise their own money for the Robert E. Lee Monuments or the Stonewall Jackson Monuments or these monuments to Confederate soldiers, just generic Confederate soldier monuments. They had to raise their own capital for that. But yet they were on the hook for Union pensions and for monuments in the North. So where is the fairness? Where is the idea that, uh, well, I mean, Southerners weren't paying their due? They were. So um, this, is, this is a distortion, again, of what was going on. This, this uh, statement is a distortion of what was going on in America. All of these monuments, by the way, the Lincoln Memorial, the Mount Rushmore carving, your monuments across the North and the South, all of these things were part of public beautification progress, projects and a progressive effort to reconcile the sections. Uh, the Jefferson Memorial was built in the 1930s, and now money was given for that by the federal government, and that was Southerners saying, we have our monument now in Washington, D.C., and Franklin Roosevelt was said, yeah, let, let's do it. Now, Franklin Roosevelt would be condemned for that today for his uh, for his attitude of reconciliation with the South. He loved parts of the South. He loved, for example, Pine Mountain, Georgia, Warm Springs. He loved that area. It's where he had his little White House. What you can say about all the negative things you can say about Roosevelt. Uh, but he was an individual who was interested, I think genuinely interested, in uh, a, an, a comprehensive view of America. Now, what about the idea that blacks had no input, no voice? Well, there was at least one, probably the most famous African-American in the entire United States, Booker T. Washington. He wrote about Confederate monuments. This is what he said. Quote, he wrote this in 1914, supposedly at the high point. Uh, the reason these monuments were put up to, uh, to emphasize Jim Crow and racial segregation and terrorism and white supremacy. This is what Booker T. Washington wrote in 1914. Quote, we all realize more and more that men like him, Confederate veteran George Paul Harrison Jr., are true friends of our race, and that any monument that will keep the fine character of such heroes before the public will prove helpful to both races in the South. End quote. So the AHA says that no African Americans had, quote, an opportunity to raise questions about the purpose or likely impact of the honor accorded to the builders of the Confederate States of America. Well, there's one. Booker T. Washington, the recognized leader in many, er in many uh, areas of African Americans in the United States. That's what he said about Confederate monuments. Now, I know some people will poo-poo that. Well, yeah, uh, Washington gave the famous you know, Atlanta uh, address or Atlanta uh, compromise, whatever it is. You know, they they want to say that that, uh, or the capitulation in Atlanta, because he was interested only in vocation and separatism. In fact, you look at Tuskegee, and, and there was the black separatist movement of that period of time. And I, I mentioned, um, uh, I can't remember if it was on this podcast, or the Abbeville podcast, about the uh, black exodus movement, people like Pap Singleton, who wanted to lead uh, a, an all-black uh, state in the United States to create one. Um, so you had some things going on that were not integrationist uh, by black leaders because Washington thought that they could do better if they controlled areas politically. And of course, in Macon County, Alabama, where Washington lived, black people voted all the time. All the time. 
Um, and he was fine with Confederate monuments. He's actually talking about a, a Confederate monument in Opelika, Alabama, um, that he was he was trying to raise money for. In fact, uh, the, the letter to him was written by uh, George Paul Harrison's wife, and they were trying to get another $300 to help pay for the monument that went up in Opelika. And, and Washington said, yeah, I'll, I'll raise money. He said, a lot of rich people aren't around right now, but I will definitely help you raise money for this. And, and he did. He made clear he thought these monuments would prove helpful to both races in the South. His words. Black Americans often attended unveiling ceremonies. They watched the procession of Jefferson Davis and John B. Gordon that went from Alabama to Georgia by the thousands. They were at these things. They did have a voice. They showed up. Now, we can say that in the South at this time, there was not... You didn't have uh, as large numbers of African Americans voting for, of course, political reasons. They were barred from voting. Uh, and so we can be critical of that and say this is wrong, um, that some of the tactics that were being used were wrong. Of course, uh, there were a large number of poor whites that were also disfranchised. That's the other thing. The AHA doesn't even know the difference between disfranchise and disenfranchised. Disenfranchised is the incorrect word. It's disfranchised. <clears throat> now, the statement also contends that, quote, history comprises both facts and interpretations of those facts. To remove a monument or to change the name of a school or a street is not to erase history, but rather to alter or call attention to a previous interpretation of history. The statement then argues, quote, a monument is not history itself. A monument commemorates an aspect of history representing a moment in the past when a public or private decision to find who would be honored in a community's public spaces. So they're saying a monument is not history. Now, part of this is true. History is interpretation. And the AHA is willfully engaging in a bit of historical revisionism. When they say this, Building monuments was part and parcel of the initiation of legally mandated segregation and widespread disenfranchisement across the South. Again, there's their misuse of the word. Memorials were intended in part to obscure the terrorism required to overthrow Reconstruction and to intimidate African Americans politically and isolate them from the mainstream of public life. This is You can't find any evidence of that. I, I've seen this said dozens of times. The, the main book, the, the most important book, written by an establishment historian, on Confederate monuments. It's titled Ghosts of the Confederacy. It was written by Gaines Foster back in the 80s. He's a professor at, um, in the South, but this was published by Oxford University Press, so not a, a uh, you know off-the-wall press. And Gaines Foster is an establishment historian. He concludes none of this. None of this. Now, he is critical of the South, but when you go back and read... All the memorial addresses and the hundreds, if not thousands, of memorial addresses, dedication ceremonies, public events, very few, if any, and I, I mean, I'm saying very few because I want to, I want to make clear that you can, might be able to find one or two or a handful, maybe. Somebody's going to go try to go out and dig, oh, here it is, right here. That's happened, you know, you had the Liberty Monument there in, in New Orleans, which was not a Confederate monument. Uh, so that's one that you can find that actually said something about white supremacy. But go out and look at others. 
Very few, if any, spoke of the white supremacy or the attempt to terrorize and intimidate African Americans. Memorial addresses often spoke of the heroism and sacrifice of the soldiers, the dedication of Southern women, and the principles of liberty and independence, and most expressed satisfaction that slavery had been abolished for the good of humanity. And that's true. They said, look, that's, it's great that slavery was abolished. Uh, they weren't saying, well, you know, gosh, I wish we still had it around. No one said that. And I'm going to give you an example. When the cornerstone was laid for the Stonewall Jackson Monument in Richmond, Virginia, William A. Anderson of Lexington, Virginia. Now, he was a, a native of Lexington, a Confederate veteran. He was a member of the Stonewall Brigade. This is what he said what this monument stood for. Quote, The example which he, Jackson, gave the world of self-sacrificing devotion to principle and to country, of loyal obedience to duty, and unquestioned faith in God, the unsurpassed manifestations of courage which he exhibited, and the radiance with which his genius illuminated the field of his triumphs. This is why the statue was there. He believed that these traits would, quote, compel the admiration of like, alike of friend and foe, and constitute a part of the patrimony of glory, not of Virginia and the Confederate South alone, but of the American people and the human race. Boy, that sound, that's just seething with hate for anyone other than white Southerners. I mean, listen to that. Listen how hateful that is. Hate. It's just coming out all over the place. I mean, if I didn't know better, I mean, this guy, I would think this guy hates everybody, even white Southerners, by saying that. I mean, how could someone dare to say that this monument is not just for the American, not just for the South, but for the American people and the human race. That's so hateful. So hateful. As of the statement that these monuments are not history, that defies the value of defies the value of such monuments as works of art. Is the Lincoln Memorial only a monument? What about Mount Rushmore or the Washington Monument? Do they constitute something other than just a monument? Are they not works of art? Of course they are, and art historians will tell you that. Now, the AHA also uh, thinks that Americans can also learn from other countries' approaches to these dif difficult issues, such as Memento Park and Budapest, Hungary. Now, most people don't know what this is, but Memento Park is a park put there to uh, move monuments to Stalinist and Leninist Soviet Union, uh, the Stalinist and Leninist Soviet Union, and communism. In other words... Confederate monuments are as illegitimate as the Soviet Empire and as bloody as Marxism and constitute a foreign part of American history. They are not American. That's the idea. They're not American. Just put them in a park and say, this is our mea culpa, this is our mistake, uh, but we're going to have them here for you to go look at to contextualize them all. These people weren't American. And that's what they say in the statement. Now, I didn't get into that part of it in the statement, but this is essentially what they say. Perhaps the most bizarre section of the statement, though, is where the AHA contends that, quote, decisions to remove memorials to Confederate generals and officials who have no other major historical accomplishment do not necessarily create a slippery slope towards removing the nation's founders, former presidents, or other historical figures whose flaws have received substantial publicity in recent years. It's simply not true. You can go around. I mean, you can just do a search for this and look at all the things that are going on. 
George Washington and Andrew Jackson are attacked in New Orleans. There was an attempt to rename James Madison High School in Wisconsin. A Christopher Columbus statue was vandalized in New York. Now, of course, as a historical figure, um, there's a call to remove the Thomas Jefferson statue at UVA, the, the school that he founded. We've seen the Richard Stockton bust at Stockton University taken out because he was a slaveholder. And this is just scratching the surface. You have uh, monuments in private on private property in cemeteries being vandalized. Of course, the Calhoun Monument in the South has been vandalized in Charleston. You've got the Joan of Arc statue vandalized in New Orleans. It's, it's, uh, to say that this is not a slippery slope is just to ignore what's going on in America. Either the AHA is delusional or maybe just overtly political, and I think that that's the case. Now, part of the statement where you know it says, well, there's no slippery slope because these people did not break up the United States. And I think that part was probably written by Annette Gordon-Reed because she gave an interview to The Atlantic where she laughs at the idea of the founding generation's next. This is her quote. We can distinguish between people who wanted to build the United States of America and people who wanted to destroy it. Now, never mind the fact that many of the prominent leaders of the Confederacy were descendants of Southern founders, and that the United States continued to exist in 1861 even without the Southern states. There was no destroying the United States. This is a stupid argument. I mean, it really just needs to be called stupid. Disingenuous, stupid, unenlightened, ahistorical. Did the breakup of the, uh, when, when the American colonies became the United States, seceded from the British Empire, did that destroy the British Empire? No one would say that. No one goes, goes out and says, uh, after the war, American War for Independence, when the British granted the 13, 13 states now their independence individually, by the way, when they did that, the British Empire ceased to exist, and now we are no longer talking about a period of British history. The empire was gone. Uh, they had nothing left. No. In fact, the British Empire only got stronger in the 19th century. We still talk about British imperial history. They just didn't have the North American colonies anymore as part of the empire. Well, we don't say Great Britain ceased to exist if the United States had lost seven states, which if Lincoln had not launched an invasion into the South, they would have only lost seven states, and the United States still would have been a slaveholding republic if they had, if they had not lost... If they had lost those seven states, the United States still would have continued to exist. It just would have been seven states fewer. Where is the, where is the idea the, the Confederacy was trying to destroy the United States? Not at all. This is stupid, stupid, stupid. Now, at the end of this piece, I say I've never joined the AHA for this particular reason, because of the stupidity by the quote-unquote scholars involved in it. And I would encourage anyone else to not join the AHA as well for this very reason. Reconsider sending a dime to this organization that clearly cares little for what they say, quote, evidence and disciplinary standards in its own publications. There's no, no shred of integrity in this piece. It's awful when you're looking at their own standards. None. Zero. 
That is the problem with the American historical profession, and that's why I wanted to do this podcast. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClendon Show.